Good evening. This is Milton Rosenberg. Welcome again to Extension 720. Tonight, no small subject, uh, ultimately the greatest, the largest, the most uh, extended subject of all, namely the universe. The universe, according to one British cosmologist, can be defined simply as everything that is the case. In other words, everything that's real and is out there, including us who are in here, uh, that makes up the universe. But where did it begin? Where is it going? What is its extent? How far extended is it into into what? Into space? Is there space beyond the universe? Or is that somehow uh, a contradictory, uh, self-contradictory thought? And is there life elsewhere in the universe? And finally, do we understand how the universe came to be out of, quote, nothing, question mark? There are many questions which persist, even though uh, people have been looking at the, the skies, looking intelligently and finding uh, significant things through their observations for at least 2,000 years. One should properly go back to uh, some of the early Greek philosopher-scientists. Uh, three scientists of the modern variety, all of them either astronomers, astrophysicists, or both, and cosmologists as well, are with us tonight. They are all from uh, the Adler Planetarium, but all connected as well with the University of Chicago. They are by name Mark Subaro, Mark Hammergren, and Grace Wolf Chase, all to be more fully introduced and defined as we commence right after the update on this evening's news to be delivered as, uh, in this case, I see, by Kim Gordon. It's Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg from the Allstate Studios in Chicago on 720 WGN. One of the favorite things that we do on this program, favorite for the host of the program, is to talk about astrophysics and cosmology. And we're doing that again tonight after rather a lapse, I think after a year or so. My three guests are all affiliated with, are all important people at the Adler Planetarium. They are Mark Subarau, who is astronomer and director of the Space Visualization Laboratory at the Adler. We'll hear more about that shortly. He's also a senior research associate at uh, the Department of uh, of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Chicago. Mark Hammergren is astronomer at the Adler and one of the chief. Are you the the chairman of it all, the president of it all? Oh no, 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 not by any means. But the section that you do run is it's the Astro Science Workshop. The Astro Science Workshop, and Grace Wolf Chase is a research astronomer also at the Adler <clears throat> and also associated. Uh, with the University of Chicago. Got a wonderful quotation. I found it just today. Mm-hmm. I think this will probably delight you. We remember that Einstein is quoted as having said, God doesn't play dice with the universe or something like that. Well, a, a mere novelist, a guy named Neil Gaiman, says, God does not play dice with the universe. He plays an ineffable game <coughs> of his own devising, which might be compared from the perspective of the players, i.e., everybody to being involved in an obscure and complex version of poker in a pitch-dark room with blank cards for infinite stakes with a dealer who won't tell you the rules and who smiles all the time. <laughs> That's great. You like that? Yeah. Absolutely. What, what truth does that somehow capture? Well, I was just thinking as uh, scientists, our job is to look at uh, what's going on in the game and try to figure out the rules. And we've got our our work cut out for us. And for that matter, find out what's out there. 
uh, with which the rules are being enacted. We don't even know what, am I right in this? We don't know what 96% of the universe is made of. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, we think only a little more than 4% of the universe is normal matter. But the crazy thing is most of that is, is normal matter we can't see. So at some level, the stuff we can see is, you know, about a percent of all the sort of energy density stuff in the universe. And we call all the rest of that stuff either dark matter or dark energy. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do we know the difference between dark matter and dark energy? Well, um, you know, uh, dark matter um, we've known about for quite some time. Back to the 1930s, Fritz Wicke noticed that galaxies uh, in clusters were moving around very fast. And simply too fast. We can count up the mass in the galaxy. And they're going too fast. They should all escape. And then, you know, later on, Vera Rubin looked at rotation curves of galaxies and saw that stars are going around too fast. They shouldn't stay in orbit. They should fly away. So we knew. So the reason they don't fly away is that they're larger and heavier than we thought they were. Well, or there's there's more mass in that more galaxy yeah. than we thought. And uh, and you know that could be just stuff we can't see. But it turns out for a number of reasons that it has to be a different kind of matter. We think we have our handle on that, and, and we, we think we kind of understand that. But in the last couple of decades, we've noticed something else, and that has to do with the universe as a whole. It's a, we've known it's expanding since 1930 in Edwin Hubble, but we've recently discovered it's expanding faster and faster all the time. We call that cosmic, ener- cosmic acceleration. One, expo- one explanation for cosmic acceleration is that there's another form of energy, one that works opposite of gravity. And if that were the case this would make up about 70% of the energy of the universe. And that would be the dark energy. That would be dark energy. Uh, and so there's no question that dark matter and dark energy are actually there because it's all conjectural in that it comes from other observations rather than from directly seeing dark energy or dark matter, which by virtue of their being dark are not seen. I'd say we're, we're very solid that there's dark matter. Um, there, there are, uh, and for, for a number of reasons uh, – some people may argue, but uh, dark energy is a little more tenuous, and the reason being is that there could be something else causing cosmic acceleration. Perhaps if our understanding of gravity was a little bit off on very large scales, we might see um, uh, cosmic acceleration. So um, modified gravity is also an alternative theory that some people are considering. We want to establish all the basic dimensions. Another basic dimension, of course, is sheer distance, is extent. Grace Wolf Chase. How big is the universe? Oh, we don't know how big the universe is. We don't. Is. Don't know that either. No, we don't. Um, we can measure out to, we, well, we can see out to about 12 billion light years to the very, very early universe. Um, but we don't know whether, in fact, the universe is extended, <laughs> goes on forever, or it doesn't. Um, one thing to keep in mind is we talk about uh, scales like billions of light years. What we really mean is that it has taken, if I say something is one billion light years away, I mean it's taken light one billion years to traverse to, to that distance, to reach our eyes. So a galaxy that we see at one billion light years away is actually a lot further out today due to the expansion of the universe. So there are kind of several built-in horizons in the universe beyond which we can't see. 
Um, and if we can look back far enough, the universe becomes mm-hmm. opaque. In the very, very early universe, it's very hot and very dense. So we sort of have these built-in horizons that we can't see beyond certain distances, but that doesn't <laughs> mean that the universe still couldn't be infinite. And that's why you talk of the observable universe. Yes, exactly. Rather than the total universe. Yes. Is it possible that the observable universe is all that there is? Uh, we, we don't think so. Um, in, in fact, we, um, we, we fully expect that from, for a number of reasons that the actual universe is much, much, much bigger than the observable universe. Why do you expect that? Well, one of which is uh, a theory called inflation, that, uh, that uh, in the first fraction of the first second of the universe, it expanded by tremendous uh, amounts. So basically, our entire universe at one point was on atomic scales. And that explains a lot of observations about the universe. It explains our initial observations of the cosmic microwave background. It explains um, why geometry, the geometry of the universe, is flat Euclidean space and not curved like a sphere or, or like the saddle of a, a saddle. <laughs> but Grace just, said, Grace just said that we don't know how far it extends. It certainly goes beyond the observable limits, and it might go on forever or, you said, infinitely. What is that... It's hard to get your mind around that particular concept. How could the universe, which began supposedly in a Big Bang, go on into inf- into infinity? Was it always infinite, or is it just extending I, into infinity? It, it is confusing. Yes, I, if if the universe is infinite today, it always was infinite. Um, and what was the Big Bang about? It's well, the Big Bang was. It, uh, it doesn't describe a point in space. This is something that's really hard, I think, for a lot of people to wrap their mind around. They think that um, the universe started in one part of space as like a, a very, very small object, as like a, a point or, or something you know, with absolutely no extent, and then expanded into something else. But it's really not correct to think about the universe as expanding in to anything else um, because we currently think that space and time were born with the universe. Um, so so it, it's making you space, can't think of... It's making space as it expands. Yeah. Is that a fair concept? <laughs> I think that's a fair mm-hmm. concept, yes. Yeah. Or, or space, space is increasing. stretching, right. yeah. yeah. And so there's, you know, people always ask, you know, where was the Big Bang? People are trying to find the location of the Big Bang. And the, and the answer in our picture is really... The Big Bang happened everywhere. You know, every place is the origin of the universe. Because there, well, there was nowhere else but where it happened. Right. That's right. And, you know, we just, we just opened a new uh, cosmology mm-hmm. gallery at the planetarium, and we have a sign that says, the universe started here, which is really referencing that. When, you, when, you, when astronomers and astrophysicists and cosmologists deal with such basic matters, which have about them the heavy quality of paradox, do you ever reach a point where you say, let's go out and get a beer? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, sometimes that's the best place where these become a, uh, ideas are, are forged, really. Uh, well, I'm really asking, doesn't it become a strain sometimes to deal with something that paradoxical? A cognitive strain. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, astronomers are humans just like everybody else. And uh, when we face something that's so terribly counterintuitive, like the mm-hmm. concept of an infinite universe being born uh, at, at an instant, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, at some level, we have to kind of disconnect our intuition and just look at what the equations tell us. You have to stop trying to visualize in uh, in the way we usually imagine things. 
Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And uh, even on smaller subjects, uh, the, the nature of uh, four-dimensional space and time and the curvature, it's really impossible for us humans to imagine what those things look like. Uh, we, we, we can come up with you know shorthand visualizations, uh, uh, moving pictures to or use other uh, uh, things, colors, uh, to, to donate, denote the, the... But one thing we're sure of is that this whole damn thing began... Some thirteen point uh, seven or something billion years ago. Mm-hmm. How in the world do you know that? Save the answer. Shall we return after we take care of even greater certitudes with these messages? Extension seven twenty with Milt Rosenberg on seven twenty WGN. And we are coming to terms with the universe, just establishing the basic dimensions, I suppose, with Mark Subarau, Mark Hammergren, and Grace Wolf Chase, all of the Adler Planetarium, where, by the way, uh, there's a great new show, began, I think, about a month ago, and we want to hear more about it. Mark uh, Subarau had a great deal to do with uh, constructing it. But before we come to that, so uh, still looking for the basic uh, dimensions, as I say, the age of the universe, we agree it's about 13.7 billion years old. But if I were um, a student, uh, an, uh, an undergraduate taking a course in astronomy at the University of Chicago in 1920, what would they have told me about the age of the universe and, for that matter, about the extent of the universe? Uh, Mark Hammergren. Well, back then they didn't know that there were any other galaxies. The universe consisted of uh, our own Milky Way galaxy, and uh, they would see galaxies. Uh, you, you can see them, in some cases, with the naked eye. But they look like clouds. They didn't know they were composed of individual stars like our own Milky Way. It wasn't until the 1920s when they began to uh, really discern that there were, there were certain types of stars that matched stars in our own galaxy. And they were so much fainter, it implied that these uh, other things must have been so much further away than they thought. Not in our own galaxy, but <clears throat> millions or billions in some cases of light years away. So there was much confusion oh, as absolutely. to what all the rest of that stuff out there was. They called, it, they called them nebulae also, uh, m- meaning sort of big, big gaseous clouds yeah, just beyond means, our galaxy. Yeah, just means cloud. Which and, just, was just a guess yeah. or a confusion. Then along came... Uh, a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago, a guy named Hubble. What, what did he do? How did he do it? Well, uh, Edwin Hubble was a, was a great observer, and uh, one of the things that he did, one of the early things he did, was uh, discover a certain type of variable star in the Andromeda galaxy, this uh, type of variable star, a Cepheid variable. Uh, it uh, varies in brightness uh, in a very predictable way. And the period of its brightness relates in a direct way to the brightness, the absolute brightness of the star. That uh, really makes it a great uh, standard candle, which uh, through its brightness allows us to measure the distance. And through that, he was able to establish that the Andromeda galaxy was around 2 million light years away. The light we were seeing from Andromeda at that moment <clears throat> emanated two million years ago. Yeah, two million years ago. And by continuing this type of work to establish the distances to other nearby galaxies, uh, that really led to Edwin Hubble's, uh, well, his what we think of as his greatest discovery, the expansion of the universe. And we'll come to the expansion shortly. It's still going on, obviously. But how do we, how do we date the origin? How do we date... The Big Bang, if we still believe in the Big Bang, back to 13.7 billion years ago. 
Well, well, the first order that co- the first order estimate comes directly out of uh, Hubble's law. So what he had done was uh, map uh, the expanding universe, and if we know the rate of expansion, what's called the Hubble constant, we can trace that back to a point where everything comes together to a single point. And so it was really Hubble's law that led to the idea of the Big Bang and the origin of the universe, and it gave an estimate. And uh, you know. Um, for most of the last century, people are trying to refine that number. There are two groups arguing about it. Um, to get an ex- what we know now is that actually that Hubble's constant, the rate of expansion, has varied over time, and we've built together a model of how the expansion has changed. You, looking at cosmic microwave background, looking at mm-hmm. how the universe is expanding now, and by mapping that or sort of integrating uh-huh. over cosmic history, we get that 13.7 billion. The cosmic background mm-hmm. radiation. Uh, that was a an accidental discovery <coughs> at Bell Labs mm-hmm. a number of years ago. Uh, the two scientists involved are... Arno Penzias and Robert right. Wilson. And Arno Penzias was on this program no. uh, many no, years ago, yeah. shortly after I started doing it. Uh, and we talked about that with him. Uh, I say accidental because they were really trying... They were having trouble getting noise out of the system as they were trying to develop some big new transmitter or was it a new telescope or something. And that noise turned out to be... They discovered background radiation, universal throughout the universe, equally distributed throughout the universe. Very, very, very faint, but coming from an original what? Explosion, would you say? Well, we, we don't like to, to use the word expo- explosion because it sort of gives a, a certain picture, which isn't quite right. It's of things moving away from Except the, the metaphor fits because yeah. if you have a, a shell with a lot of fragments in it, if it explodes all those separate fragments move away quickly. Right, exactly. Except the only difference is space is moving with, with, with the particles yeah. in the universe. Yeah. So that's, that's kind, of, uh, kind, of, kind of the thing. But, yeah, I mean, that's a great story, right? And it's uh, uh, the Penzias and Wilson story. And, you know, there's great stories about all, all the things, you know, that they thought maybe the noise was coming from pigeon poop and they yes. have cages. <laughs> you know, you can get, go to the Smithsonian and see the cage where they're trying to trap the pigeons uh, to clean out the uh, radio horn. But... Um, for this discovery, they ultimately got the Nobel, of course. They did. Um, but uh, what you imagine is um, that as you go backwards, uh, everything is, is closer and closer together. We know that if we, you expand a gas, it cools. Well, if you compress it, it heats up. So the early universe was hotter and hotter. And what we're actually seeing is uh, light from that early hot universe, the first light that uh, was able to travel freely in the universe. And it's been traveling Ever since, and we're able to collect a little bit of that today. Way back when people had uh, TV antennas, they used to actually some of that static you would see was actually coming from the Big Bang, but not in your cable or satellite. I'm afraid. Uh, Grace Wolf Chase, what was there 14 billion years ago? 14 billion years ago, as in before the beginning of the universe? Yeah, that's my point. You'd have to ask cosmologist Mark Subarau. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, no, no. You, you, you <laughs> yeah. That's not a question you can ask anyone. We, well, people can guess. We, we, so, yeah. you know, what happened before the Big Bang is a strange question because, you know, we think of time beginning with the Big Bang. But now, you know, people are, there are more and more speculative theories, and some of which involve multiple universes being born all the time. So, and little a new universe is bubbling out of them. Exactly. Um, right. So if we start to think about – I mean the Big Bang – everybody thinks the Big Bang theory is a theory about the origin of the universe, but it's not. It's a theory about what happens after the Big Bang. Yeah. So it's a theory of the origin of, quote, our universe. Of our universe, right? But it doesn't explain why it started. But if 
people are starting to come up with theories of why universes would start. And if that, those sort of things that create one universe tend to create many universes. <clears throat> Mark Emigrant, is it now, in the consensual view of relevant scientists, is it now deemed rather likely that there are other universes? Well, we don't have any observational evidence of other universes, but these uh, these hypotheses that are being thrown out there, they they seem to be uh, have some degree of support in in other respects. The the theory of inflation of the universe uh, can imply the generation of multiverses, and the, the theory of inflation explains very well what we see around us in the universe today. So if it implies – if it sol solves this one answer, uh, then uh, – and it implies well, – How does the theory of inflation go? What does it explain apart from there being multiple universes? Well, in part it explains uh, why the universe appears so relatively uniform uh, in uh, very large distances. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, the, even more than that, uh, uh, it explains <clears throat> the, the specific distribution of galaxies that we see throughout our, our universe. Uh, nowadays, in, instead of just being limited to observation and theory, we can also simulate. Well, what does the theory of inflation refer to? Inflation in what sense? Uh, a, a very rapid expansion of the early uh -huh. universe. Within the first minute or the first... Within the first second. The first millisecond or something like that. Indeed. Who's the, um, the great Nobel laureate who did the book the first three minutes? Down, was, uh, down in Texas. Stephen Weinberg. Weinberg, exactly. Uh, he doesn't treat it that way, does he? That book is rather old now. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. And he doesn't evoke inflation theory. No, not in that book. Yeah. So it's a rather recent, it's a more recent development. Yeah, actually, one of the things, um, we actually have at the planetarium a notebook from Alan Guth at MIT. Uh -huh. And it's, it's a pretty spectacular, actually, the piece <laughs> is at the top of his page, he writes, spectacular realization. And then he goes on to describe, you know, you know the uh, inflation, or what will later be called inflation, and how that explains uh, certain properties. Guth is more or less the father of he inflation is. theory. Yeah. He is. There, are, there are a couple of scientists, but uh, you know he's yeah. typically given credit. Uh, onward and upward and outward with the universe when we return right now to the WGN newsroom for a full update on what's been happening, and that from Paula Cooper. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And we return to conversation with our three friends from the staff of the Adler Planetarium, Grace Wolf-Chase, Mark Hammergren, Mark Subarau. Uh, last time our friend Rocky Kolb was here from the University of Chicago, he predicted, well, they're about to find the Higgs boson uh, at CERN over in Switzerland. Uh, and he's, he was pretty sure they would find it. Since then, we've had the announcement, I think literally within the last month or so, that yes, the Higgs boson exists as we knew it did, but now we can prove it. Uh, I won't talk about how they found it. That's uh, uh, the complex physics of that kind of uh, reactor or rather that kind of collider. And they've got the biggest one in the world. But what does the discovery of the Higgs boson mean for uh, astronomy and astrophysics. Does it have any significance in that realm? Well, well it certainly does. Um, so the Higgs boson is a product of the Higgs field, and the Higgs field explains um, why particles have mass. And one of the interesting things is, um, so, I mean, in cosmology, we know that particles have mass. We can just assume that. We don't, we, you know, and that the Higgs boson completes a picture of 
particle physics. If particles didn't have mass, I wouldn't feel anything as I lifted this cup of water. Yeah, absolutely. So we know something has to produce mass. But um, but there are, there are a couple of things. So the next big discovery in uh, particle physics is likely to be the dark, the particle that makes up the dark matter. And that's very important to us. One interesting thing about the Higgs field is it's one of the few fields that both the dark matter particles and normal matter particles feel. So that we have that connection. Um, there's another uh, sort of picture that this idea of predicting these fields, um, we, predi- we predict similar fields to explain cosmological things like inflation. So there's an inflaton field. It falls upon me. I've got to do this to you. I'm sorry to any answer, all of you. <clears throat> you use field, assuming that we all know what a field means. I know what a field is when cows are romping in it. Mm-hmm. What does a field mean when we're talking about physics or astrophysics? Well, uh, a field such as a magnetic field or a yeah. gravitational field is the way we we currently talk about forces. Um, back in the days of Newton, for example, in gravity, um, they thought of gravity as a, a force from afar between mm-hmm. two different particles. And now, since Einstein and since the development of the fields of sciences like general relativity, um, we describe these in, instead of we think about forces differently. We think instead about fields that pervade all of space and particles move within those fields. So, for example, um, famous from Einstein is that um, mass tells space how to curve and that curvature sort of directs the movements of particles so that a planet, for example, orbiting a star orbits in a gravitational field. It's a different way of talking about what we used to blithely talk about as forces. Mm -hmm. How much of this kind of knowledge is conveyed <coughs> in the uh, new show that you've got organized at the Adler? I made mention of it before without even giving its proper title. Uh, is Welcome to the Universe the title? That's the title, yes. I've got a big folder here, uh, very handsomely produced, and it says Welcome to the Universe. Uh, what goes on in the show itself? Well, uh, Welcome to the Universe, uh, basically, it's sort of a three-part show uh, that steps you through what what a modern planetarium can really do well. And and the revolution we've had in technology in planetarium has been incredible the last few years. Um, But we start out with traditional what's up in the night sky, some things for you to notice. But then we turn back, look at the Earth, and look at very recent data coming from the whole Earth observing system, satellites observing the Earth. But then we fly, and one of the nice things you can get is a sense of scale. So we start flying out. We go past the moon, through Mars. We assume we're on a, a spaceship of some kind. Of- yeah, I mean, I try to use that Carl Sagan spaceship of the imagination uh-huh. metaphor. So that, that's that's what's in my mind. I, I'm trying to create a, a spaceship of the imagination when I create You are the basic designer of the show then, right? Yes. And what do you have to do to design such a show? What do you have to know? What kind of equipment do you need? Um, well, you know, there's, there's sort of specialized planetarium software, and really what we do is we assemble data sets, whether they're planetary data sets, galactic data sets, extragalactic data sets, and we put that in the software, and then we basically uh, tell it how to fly through the, uh, through the universe. Now, if you're welcoming us to the universe, uh, our nearest galaxy beyond the Milky Way is Andromeda. So do we drop in on Andromeda? We do indeed. What do we find there? Um, well, when we, we pass by it, we talk about our upcoming collision in about four billion years from now. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're uh, what's going to? 
We are going to collide with Andromeda? We, we are indeed. That's we going are. to make life rather difficult. You know, it may not be so bad because uh, the thing is that uh, galaxies are really pretty empty. Yeah. You know, if I, I were to shrink down our solar system so the sun was the size of a tennis ball, the next closest star would be out in Las Vegas. So imagine these sort of tennis balls separated by a thousand miles each. When they collide, when the two galaxies collide, the tennis balls don't collide. They pass through each other. Even if they don't collide, there are going to be some effects. All yeah, the they feel each other's gravitational effects. So they're completely ripped apart and the galaxies are changed. Well, and what does happen is between the stars, the, the interstellar space is full of gas and dust. Yeah. And some of these gaseous clouds are very big and uh, reasonably dense, not by standards of our atmosphere, but by the standards of interstellar space. And when galaxies collide, what does happen is these gas and dust clouds collide and they can compress the matter so that you can get bursts of new star formation. So when galaxies collide, they generally form uh, these kinds of galaxies like starburst galaxies. But now, seriously, <clears throat> as if they're going to collide in four billion years, they will be approaching one another uh, for, uh, for a billion years before that. Maybe they're approaching one, of the right, one another right now. That approach will produce further physical effects. Will life on this planet survive such a collision or such a blending of galaxies? Well, it depends on exactly what happens to our sun. And uh, from what uh, Mark was saying and Grace was saying, the stars will pass through each other. Uh, clouds of gas and dust will slam into each other, spark new star formation. We'll uh, get plenty of uh, supernovae going off in the galaxy. Uh, and uh, that'd be dangerous if we're close to one of those. But that, even that is not terribly likely. <clears throat> Chances are we'll just continue orbiting around what becomes this combined Milky Way Andromeda galaxy. We'll see a different view in our nighttime sky, but our solar system <clears throat> shouldn't be affected. Well, when is our sun supposed to die? Yeah, well, that's that's the other problem, <laughs> right? So at about the same time, that's our sun thought, will yeah. turn into a red giant, um, and it will expand considerably. How how much is a little unknown, but almost all the way out to where we are now. It doesn't sound very friendly to living no, things. No, no, we'd have to move. Yeah. <laughs> We know we're going to have to head further out in the solar system. Um, it's not going to be pleasant here. Well, but the total galaxies are going to collide, so there's no place else in the solar system that will be free of the effects of the coming of Andromeda. Um, well, yes, but, you know, as we're just saying, we, we might be able to survive that. So, you know, you, you head to the outer solar system. Um, we'll have a beautiful view. Uh, the night sky will be spectacular during this uh, <laughs> Milky Way Andromeda collision. So I encourage you all to, to stick around. Well, and by that time, it's even possible we will have moved beyond our solar system. Seems to me no place in the solar system would be safe. Uh, if, well, the whole two, if the two galaxies are blending into one. If they're blending into one, but again, if the planets are not disrupted in our solar system, uh -huh. they'll still be there. The I outer see. planets would still be there. But there's also the possibility of traveling beyond our solar system. Yeah. Our solar system is about 3 billion miles across. The next nearest star is over 24 trillion miles yeah. away. Now you're talking real miles rather than... Now we're talking real mileage, yeah. yes. <laughs> now we're talking numbers <coughs> like the national debt. You know. Well, so far we've only touched Andromeda, <coughs> and that's the nearest galaxy. Uh, in the show, you must head out beyond Andromeda yeah, as well. Yeah, so I think the the best part of the show is really when we head out to cosmological scales. So we head out to a billion light years, and we travel through the largest map of the universe ever made, a map of a million galaxies. And what you see is this beautiful pattern network of galaxies that we call the cosmic web. 
And uh, we've we just really been able to put this together in the last few years, this picture of a large three-dimensional model for universe. Yeah, we go out one billion light years. But, but the limits of the observable universe is 12 billion light years? Yeah, it depends how you count because um, – because and, and Grace touched on this earlier, as you go to cosmological scales, it's hard to measure distance. There are a couple of different ways, but um, we can see light that's traveled 13.7 billion years. But because the universe was expanding that whole time, that light is the, the place it came from is now 40 some billion light years away from Earth. So that's that's kind of the extent, and, and in either direction. So we have an observable universe that's almost just short of 100 billion light years across. Um, but yeah, we stick to the nearby part where we've mapped a lot of galaxies and we know their positions really well because that's kind of the... the there is a lot of stuff out there. That's clear. There's a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> uh, did I quote before? If not, I'll do it again. <clears throat> or if I did or didn't, here it is again. Uh, the general estimate, which I've heard often... In fact, I first got it from Carl Sagan. Uh, but since then, I've heard it many times quoted, is that in the observable universe, there are approximately 100 billion galaxies... 100 billion galaxies, and that uh, approximately each galaxy has, on average, has 100 billion suns. And many of those suns have planets on many of which life may arise, unless possibly life has arisen uniquely here and one can determine uh, somehow or other that life would not be possible anyplace else but here. That's a question that has exercised some speculators over recent years. I think we might visit that question when we return, after we pause for these words. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And so, inevitably, returning to Mark Subarau and Mark Hammergren and Grace Wolf Chase, all of the Adler Planetarium, we return to uh, one of the common questions that really interests, even agitates people. Uh, is there life elsewhere? It's commonly assumed that there is, but there are some members of your confraternity who argue, no, 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 this was a unique event that could have happened only here. On what basis do they argue that? Well, I think first we need to start with how likely it is that other stars have planets. And one of the things we've learned in the past couple of decades is that it seems that most stars do probably yeah, have planets. Sure. And in fact, they're expected to have planets because what we understand about star formation is that stars first form when uh, clouds of gas and dust in the interstellar medium have enough mass to collapse oh. down into stars and most of these clouds start out spinning a little bit and as they pull together through gravity they flatten out and form these disks of material around stars you actually expect planets to form in those disks so we're learning now um, about how that process occurs how the planets build up in these protos what are called protostellar disks but we're also discovering a lot of extrasolar planets a lot of other planets around other stars in fact over less than 20 years we've built up um, knowledge of over 600 of these extrasolar planets with a candidate list that goes on for thousands, thousands then, then we keep looking for so-called earth-like planets. earth-like planets that's right and one of the nasa missions that's particularly looking for earth-like like planets is uh, the Kepler 
mission. Um, a Kepler is a, a very unique kind of a NASA telescope. It's a space telescope that's actually staring at a patch of sky in our Milky Way for over three years, for about three and a half years, the lifetime, expected lifetime of Kepler. And if you Put your hand up um, and imagine the size of your palm against the sky. Kepler's looking at a fairly large patch of the Milky Way, monitoring actually thousands of stars, looking for small dips in light from the stars. As planets orbit around the stars, occasionally some of those systems will be lined up so that the planet will pass across the face of its star. Now, we don't see an eclipse because stars are so bright. They're such bright point sources. What we actually measure is a very, very small dip in the light output from the star. So this is the method that Kepler is using to search for extrasolar planets. And Kepler is sensitive enough to start picking up planets the size of Earth in what are called the habitable zones, which the habitable zone is simply the, pl the place where a planet can orbit its star where liquid water can exist on the surface of the planet. So that's of great interest because those are the planets that are likely to be most like Earth. Um, so whereas we don't have any smoking gun for life elsewhere yet, we are building up counts on these numbers of Earth-like or super-Earth-like planets. But even if you found... Uh, a number of Earth-like planets, uh, it still doesn't follow that the magical, strange combination of uh, inorganic elements would have somehow fired off an organic molecule. Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. What we do know are the same kind of molecules are present elsewhere in the universe, in our galaxy, hydrogen, as there are here. Yeah. Not only hydrogen, but complex organic molecules pervade the interstellar mm -hmm. medium, sure. uh, complex hydrocarbons. So the, the raw, the basic ingredients are there. What a lot of the missions to search for extrasolar planets are ultimately trying <laughs> to do is learn something about the atmospheres of these planets that might tell us something about whether at least these planets are habitable. Whether they're habitated, yeah. whether they're habited, inhabited, excuse me, is yet another question. Yeah, and that's difficult. Mark, and, uh, I, I think when we look at the question of uh, whether life has arisen on any of these planets, we can be informed by the history of uh, our own planet Earth, although it's just a sample size of one, and you can't really draw a trend from mm -hmm. one point. We can look at the early history of the Earth, and we find evidence of life here on Earth, simple single-cell life, dating back to about 3.6, 3.8 billion years ago. That's uh, right around the period when the Earth was being hit by giant asteroids big enough to sterilize the entire planet. So it looks like as soon as life possibly could arise and survive on Earth, life was here. That suggests that simple life is, uh, is easy to come about when the conditions are right. Of course, you got that curious, very interesting idea put forward by Sir Francis Crick. Uh, he and Watson being the, the discoverers of DNA. But then he went on to other things, and he comes up with the panspermia hypothesis, that life did not originate on Earth, that the life that we know comes from uh, unicellular forms or something quite simple that came in on those meteors that began hitting Earth some three billion years ago. 
That that's a very interesting thought, and is it? There, there are two, well, a couple different versions of panspermia. One is that this life throughout the universe, yeah. throughout our galaxy, has been spread in this way. And it's difficult to imagine how uh, single-cell life, even spores of some kind, could survive interstellar travel because the, the time scales are so very long. The radiation damage would be so very great. Uh-huh. But uh, survival of, of life forms between planets in a solar system is really quite likely. Uh, so uh, you have an impact occur on a, on pl- the early planet Earth, say, and throwing up rocks. And inside these rocks, you have little microbes living there. Uh, the transit times between one planet oh. to the other could be short enough that they could survive that transit. There were some rocks that came from Mars, uh, meteor things, which were investigated by some scientists uh, uh, maybe 10 years ago who claimed they found little unicellular forms in those rocks. Uh, later, that was either disproved or at least generally rejected. You know you know about that. Oh, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. What, do you, what do you make of it? Well, uh, the consensus in the community right now seems to be that uh, these uh, fossil microbes that they, they claim yeah. really are better explained as just uh, inorganic uh, uh, collections of minerals that, that formed just by these inorganic processes. They can mimic the appearance of life forms, of little fossil microbes. Chris, you go to near planets... Uh, Grace, this is your category, category again, since you're very interested in planet formation and so on. We co- we, we go back to Mars. Uh, we now have established uh, ever with more and more certainty that there was a water base in Mars. Uh, and, uh, and water is essential to life of the kind that we know. Is it conceivable that we might ultimately, just with the automatic machines digging around Mars, pick up some evidence of uh, at least simple life forms, uh, as in fossil form, that is. I would think that is conceivable. That is actually a, qu- a better question for Mark, being a solar system astronomer. Um, back to I, Mark Hammer. Yes, my back to Mark Hammer. All right. Um, well, yeah, uh, no, it's possible, but none of the none of the rovers, including the Curiosity rover, which is going to hmm. land on Mars here, uh, just coming up in uh, August, the night of August fifth, early August sixth. Uh, it's not equipped to drill down and examine the places where b- we believe that life currently exists. And it doesn't really have the tools to, to look for that life itself. It can look for the conditions, for the environments that could support But life. do you remember it was possibly some 30 years ago on the first Mars lander or rover, whatever it was, some, and it did some chemical experiments uh, on Mars, and one guy at least... One, one relevant scientist claimed there was evidence there of organic responsiveness. That was what, uh, what it first appeared, just based on the, the results of this experiment. They took a bunch of ma- uh, Martian soil and dumped it into a, a nutrient solution. Yeah. And uh, they found uh, results of that experiment, gases coming off, that seemed to indicate or could be explained by uh, the metabolism, by microbial life. But it can also be explained by inorganic chemical reactions. We we believe uh, and have evidence that the surface of Mars has some very, very reactive chemicals, peroxides, uh, uh, these kinds of things that could mimic these same kinds of reactions that were found. So the evidence is, is not good that it was caused by actual life. I've got a big assignment for you. I'll give it to you, and you have three or – no, you have about four or five minutes to think it all over. Um, here we are in the year 2012. Uh, if you had gone to the year uh, 1912, and if I had asked you, what will, and you were working astronomers 
an astrophysicist at the time, I asked you, what will be known in 100 years? Could you have predicted what we've got now? But what I'm asking you instead is, cast your mind forward 100 years. What might be discovered that we now don't know, and what might be discovered that we don't know we don't know uh, by the year 2112, uh, directly back to Mar the two marks, Subarau and Hammergren, and the Grace Wolf Chase, after the full update on the evening's news from Paula Cooper. It's Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg from the Allstate Studios in Chicago on 720 WGN. I was just kidding around earlier when I said, what will uh, you know, what will your, uh, your opposite numbers know or your followers know, or your successors, there's the proper word, 100 years from now. And, uh, of course, there's no way of knowing that. But I remembered somebody's comment, I guess it was in politics, who said, not only don't we know, we don't even know what we don't know. What don't you? What don't we know that we don't know that might ultimately emerge as a, as a problem? I think, in a way, as a way of getting at that question, um, it helps to share a story uh, that goes back over 100 years. Yeah. Towards the end of the 19th century, um, physicists thought we were sort of on the verge of wrapping it all up, of you know, pretty much having all the interesting answers in science, and in fact. Two famous scientists at the time, Simon Newcomb and Lord Kelvin, were became famous for making a statement to the effect that the ne what a shame the next generation of physicists will only be able to calculate things to the next mm -hmm. decimal place. But this was on the eve of Einstein and on the eve of the discovery of the science of quantum mechanics, describing a rather counterintuitive behavior on very, very small scales. Um, and also of general relativity, which entailed a whole new way of conceiving of gravity um, and motion and relationships. So I think this is a strong cautionary note um, about making statements that we're on the verge of a theory of everything and we can wrap it all up. Um, so I think that uh, as far as what we d don't know, we don't know, um, that's very, very difficult to say. Um, I don't think there are many people. There are a lot of things in astrophysics that we wouldn't have predicted. An example from my own field, um, one of the things that we now know is very, very important to the formation of stars are that very young stars generate these incredible outflows that can span light years of space. Um, and these were never predicted theoretically. Uh, there was there was absolutely no discussion of outflows until they were first observed. And then people who studied the theory of star formation went back and realized that these outflows solved a longstanding problem of angular momentum, meaning that when you get a cloud of gas and dust to collapse down from a very, very large size to the size of a star, um, as that cloud spins faster and faster, it's going to blow apart if it doesn't have some way of slowing down. It turns out outflows carry away this angular momentum. So that was completely unenvisioned. So as far as knowing what we don't know, that's a really difficult question to answer. Sure. Making it easier now, what uh, do we know that we don't know? What, do you, what are the problems that now preoccupy astrophysicists uh, and uh, cosmologists which are likely to be solved 100 years from now? 
Well, uh, looking at one of the big questions that we addressed a little while ago, are we alone in the universe? Oh, of course. And we're, we're making baby steps in that regards. We're looking for conditions elsewhere that might support life. We're looking for planets around other stars that might we're support life. We're also doing life. SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial That's right. we're looking for Intelligence ex- yeah. through radio uh, uh, telescopy, but that doesn't work, does it? Is well, it, it hasn't worked yet. It's yielded nothing yet. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's yielded a lot of science, really. I've got a friend who works uh, on data coming from the Allen Array uh-huh. lo- uh, that you know, was designed to look for alien intelligences, but it's a really great means of looking at transient radio signals from all kinds of natural objects. There's a, a lot of good science coming out of that. They just haven't found these yeah. intelligent civilizations yet. Yet, that's, that's I think, a very important word. When, it, when, when you say, as you have said even tonight, that we don't know whether the universe is infinite or not, 100 years from now, will we have an answer to that question? We may, yeah. If we start to think on these sort of forefront issues, there, there are a lot of sort of really exciting questions that we, we could knock off in the next century. We start out by mentioning we don't know what 96% of the universe is. Well, yeah. dark matter, I think you know most cosmologists will tell you that we'll know what the dark matter is in the next decade. Dark energy is a tougher nut. You know, that may take several decades. But in 100 years, I think we'll understand that. You know, we we talked about multiverses. We might find evidence that we live in a multiverse. There are already um, a couple of observations that have people claiming they see evidence for a multiverse now. I don't believe either of them. But, um, you know, there's people looking at the cosmic microwave background think that maybe they see evidence that we've collided with another bubble universe early on in our history. Um, there, are, there are people uh, that are claiming what they call a dark flow. They see everything's moving in one direction mm-hmm. and perhaps we're moving towards you know, another bubble universe. The, the, the evidence for both these is pretty tenuous. But you know, with better data, we could get there. Um, we might find out that there are more than right, – you know, we live in a universe with basically three spatial dimensions, one dimension of time mm-hmm. in, in near black holes and in strange places they're linked. But you know, those are our four-dimensional universe. But there could be other dimensions. You know, there are the extra dimensions of string theory that are very tiny. But we could even imagine that there are large extra dimensions that exist all around us, but we're somehow constrained to live in these three. Um, and people are looking for that now. They might even find evidence of that in the Large Hadron Collider in CERN. Hmm. So there, there's a lot of crazy stuff that, you know, it, it's probably within our grasp in the next hundred years. I mean, where we've come in the last hundred is amazing and the not pace of knowledge is accelerating. So. We are uh, going to be going to the phones uh, a little bit later on, but we're opening the phone lines at, at this instant. The number is, as ever, 312-591-7200. 312-591-7200. And if you're listening on a planet on some sun in the Andromeda galaxy and want to reach us, you can't really do it by phone, but uh, you can do it by email, of course. Uh, or if you're in San Francisco and want to reach us, the better way would be by email. Or wherever you are listening to us over the Internet, any place in the world. In, in fact, uh, our uh, email address is readily available to you, and that is extension720 at wgnradio.com. So again, for email... <coughs> Extension 720 at WGNRadio.com. For phone calls, 312-591-7200. I see some phones 
uh, lighting up right now, uh, but there are still a few lines available. However, if you hit the busy signal when you call, don't be uh, totally or permanently discouraged. Just call again right after we say goodnight to a prior caller. Uh, get those calls and, for that matter, those emails in. We shall be with you shortly. First, these words. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. Uh, we will be going to the phones shortly. I do see that all the lines are taken. So uh, be patient there. If you're trying to reach us, uh, try uh, directly after we say goodnight to a prior caller on 312-591-7200. And, of course, there's infinite room, whatever that means, uh, in, this, uh, in this context, infinite room on our, uh, uh, in our uh, email, the email address, extension720 at wgnradio.com. A little bit more about the show. Uh, the show titled, uh, Welcome to the Universe. How often does that, uh, is it once a day or more than once a day? No, it, it runs uh, five times every day. It's every, so what is it, about a one-hour show? It's uh, it's about half an hour. And so it's easily with then, another show. five yep. times a day. Yep. And uh, then there's an exhibit that goes along with it. There is. Um, there's a cosmology exhibit. Yeah. Um, what's the, I came to this town a long time ago, 1965. One of the first things I did was take my little toddler son to the Adler Planetarium. Uh, I've been there once or twice since, but not very often, I fear. Uh, and I should really go back. I should go back and watch these shows. But what else is to be done at the planetarium apart from seeing the shows? Oh, one of the things that our visitors should definitely come do is visit the Space Visualization Lab. What is that? It is a... Well, it's a, uh, a special exhibit space where uh, people can come and hear talks by astronomers or historians daily. It's open between noon and 1 and 2 to 3 p.m. from Mondays through Saturdays. Um, and what the public uh, loves to do especially is get the one-on-one -on -one interaction with an astronomer, with a scientist, and they can do that in the SVL. They can ask um, an astronomer a question they've always had about astronomy and hear from the scientists themselves who work in the area. So we have a whole bunch of different visualizations at our tools, and Mark can describe some of those tools a little bit more deeply. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're pretty proud of this. I don't think there's another museum in the world, really, that has so much access to working scientists. Uh -huh. But we have, we have a 3D display. We have a giant tile display. Uh, we, you know, interact with uh, Kinect so I can zoom in on the universe with my hands. But, but all that's really to facilitate this discussions about science. The Who's the Adler who originally, must have originally provided the money? Mm -hmm. Who was that? Max Adler was... Uh, a uh, businessman and uh, official at uh, Sears Roebuck Company. Uh -huh. And uh, he <clears throat> made a visit to Europe, uh, visited the first planetarium uh, there in Berlin, and thought this is something that we want to have in Chicago. Chicago is a world-class city. We have to have this kind of institution. Came back to uh, Chicago, and uh, he donated some of his collection of uh, astronomical artifacts, uh, instruments, early instruments, and and the money needed to get this planetarium off the ground. When was it actually off the ground? What's what's the huh. when was the opening? Nineteen thirty. And uh -huh. uh, let's see, what's, what's that specific date? I believe May eleventh. May eleventh. Gee, there was a World's Fair in Chicago in the early nineteen thirties. This must have been a feature of it. Right? It was, yeah. And there's a preconception that people have that the planetarium was built for the World's Fair. 
But uh, sounds we, like it was built before. It built before that, yeah. But we played a grand role for it. Sure. Uh, the planetarium was involved in the opening ceremonies of it. The the uh, power to this World's Fair was turned uh-huh. on based on uh, the reception of light from from the star uh, Arcturus. I think. Oh, it really? Was. It is time for us to go to the phones. Three one two. Five nine one seven two double zero, and our first caller is Anne. Good evening. You're on the air. Good evening to all. I just wanted a quick clarification on the term "dark." As I understand it, um, when it's used in regards to energy and matter, it's not using the definition of being unlit or dark in color, but rather being unknown, as they once referred to, darkest Africa being that area that was not yet explored by Caucasians. Well, well that, that's, that's correct. So uh, dark matter is called dark matter, <laughs> not simply because it doesn't light up, because, because it actually doesn't interact with light at all. And that's really what differentiates dark matter. And I think dark energy was sort of a riff off of dark matter. So uh, that's, that's how those terms came about. Dark energy uh, got its name by uh, Mike Turner, who's a friend of the show. And who's been here often. Uh, but still, you don't see it directly, do you? No. There's no way of of uh, no. g- getting data on it. Well, there there are ways of getting data on it, but it's all indirect detection. Actually, one of the amazing yeah. things we've been able to do recently is, is map out dark matter. And by looking at how gravity distorts the image of distant objects, objects behind <laughs> uh, the dark matter, we can actually map out uh, where the dark matter is. So you'll see these images from the Hubble Space Telescope where they'll paint in blue or purple where the dark matter is, because we're actually building up a map of what we can't see. Our thanks to the caller. Let's go directly to another. We want to handle a lot of calls. At the moment, there is one. Indeed, there are two lines available. If you've been trying to reach us, try again quickly at 312-591-7200. And next up is Peter. Good evening, sir. You're on the air. Hello, are you there? Hello? Yes, sir. Please go ahead. I read recently that the proton has a finite half-life. Is that true? And if so, does that mean that the universe will eventually cease to exist? No. Even I can tell you that. <laughs> now, now let, me, let, let me have my guest explain why that's not true. Well, I, th- those are two very separate things. So, uh, you know, as far... I, as far as I know, there's, there's no solid evidence of an unstable proton. But, but even if the proton decays, the universe will still be here. I mean, eventually we could get to a point where um, all the matter in the universe we might be gone um, if the universe expands uh, away enough. But, but there'll still be space here. Um, it is true that the more things change, the more they do change. <laughs> the French are wrong when they say plus la même chose. Uh, and Ultimately, great stellar bodies change, and ultimately we, there's no reason that we could expect that this planet on which we live will persist with life upon it to infinity. It, that won't happen. No. In fact, our sun will be going through changes, um, and as we talked about earlier, eventually we expect our sun to become a red giant um, and swell up to pretty much to the Earth's orbit. Um, in f- when That's going to make life rather uncomfortable. That'll make life rather uncomfortable. That's a really heavy sunburn. Uh, yeah, absolutely, yes. Yes, hopefully we'll, we'll have moved either further out in the solar <laughs> system or elsewhere. At when does time. that begin to happen? 
not for billions of years yet. So our sun is a sort of a middle-aged star right now. Yeah. It's about 5 billion years old. It's got a good 10 billion year lifetime, and some of those effects will kick in. By the way, when it comes to planetary science, something that we get movie scenarios on, and I gather there is some real, if, if low level, still there is some danger of actual major asteroids hitting us and wiping out a good deal of life. We know that's how the, the dinosaurs disappeared some, what is it, 60 million years ago? About 65 million years ago. Yeah. And asteroid impacts, uh, they're, they're a fact. They happen all the time at very small scales for us. Uh, uh, about a dozen times a year, asteroids uh, weighing maybe a ton or 10 tons uh, hit the Earth. Yeah. So the small scales, they happens all the time. About every thousand years, you get something that's the size of, say, a football field hitting the Earth. Mm-hmm. Last time was 1908 over Siberia. Uh, larger ones, like uh, ones that are, can cause mass extinctions, uh, the, the 65 million years ago, that that occurs roughly every 100 million years. Not like clockwork, just on those kinds of times. But we have that movie where this bare-chested famous actor goes up there and deflects the asteroid Yeah, that, with a nuclear weapon. Right, right. Uh, well, you need a lot of energy to deflect a, a large asteroid. I should think so. so. One of the most concentrated forms is a nuclear weapon. Now, the specifics, blowing these things up to smithereens, that just is not going to work. But deflections, slow deflections over the course of <coughs> decades, that's likely uh, to be how we deal with these things. It just doesn't make for great cinema, you know. But we can master the technology to turn these away from us? Oh, yeah. I think we have all of the technology. We know the physics. Uh, uh-huh. we, we have the technology. Uh, all of the rest is specific engineering. That's reassuring, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even better than that, though, surveys have been going on for a long time looking for potentially hazardous asteroids. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a threshold of size, about a kilometer is the size at, at which you begin to have global effects. And uh, astronomers have found more than 90% of all potentially hazardous asteroids larger than a kilometer. And we know that none of those are going to hit the Earth. I want to read a very interesting email that we've uh, just come in. But first, let me say again, we've got some lines available. Get in there quickly for any question you want to raise or any report you want to give us on asteroids you have discovered or, for that matter, any new cosmologies that you have mastered. Uh, 312-591-7200 is the number. 312 591 7200. Here's something from a regular listener of ours down in Nashville. This is Mark, who says, For some years I've tried to imagine the unimaginable, the scale of the universe and beyond. As you say, hundreds of billions of universes with hundreds of billions of stars like our sun. Typically, I lie down and simply meditate for a half hour or so upon this virtual infinity. Over time, it has had a profound effect upon me. It has given me a certain detachment and distance from my microscopic little world and the people I know and love and the tasks at hand. I do not abandon any of the latter, but this newfound distance seems to quiet the bad emotions like anger, greed, jealousy, and hate. I am not so easily hurt or disturbed as I once was. I am more at peace." Suppose we could arrange such meditations at the United Nations for the heads of state around the world. Is it theoretically possible that, after all, meditations upon the infinite could have beneficial effects for humanity, effects which might lessen war, poverty, and the selfishness of the acquisitive instinct? Isn't that an interesting line? 
It's beautiful, and I think that that's really what lies at the heart of science is awe and wonder of it all. And the more we learn, it doesn't become any more, any less mysterious. Um, it deepens the mystery. And I think your um, your listener is absolutely right. I think if we could turn people on more to awe and wonder and taking notice of all those things around them, um, I think it really would help world peace. Do any of you, have you ever had that affect yourself? That is, are you at all aware of... You, the calming influence of thinking about the vastness of the universe? Well, it's an interesting thing because, of course, we think about that stuff all the time. That, but you, you can exactly. still get caught up with all the things in your daily life. But, but I think there's a real power there to, and, and for everyone to be aware of our place in the universe yeah. in, in the immensity of space. And, and really that's you know what I was trying to accomplish with the show. I encourage Mark to come up to Chicago and – I'll take him through mm-hmm. the universe. And what we can do is really... No, he's another Mark. We've got two Marks yeah. here, and <laughs> exactly. that's Mark in, Ma- in Nashville. Yeah. Uh, I, w- one of my great pleasures in astronomy is still going out under the night, night sky and uh-huh. just simply enjoying the view of the stars or cracking out a telescope and looking at some of these beautiful objects, the faint fuzzies that in reality we know are distant galaxies. And knowing mm-hmm. more about these objects really doesn't diminish my appreciation of them and it, it it absolutely improves that to know that i'm looking at the faint light from billions of stars isn't it a shame that we can't go out under the night sky in chicago it's a, it's absolutely uh, uh, unless you go to the adler yeah well uh, even at the adler you can't see the night sky directly no for see, it's like, light pollution here <coughs> in chicago yeah. is among the worst in the world yeah and we really should do something about that what could be done about it shielded lights better use of lights uh uh, there are many, many different kinds of things that can be done, hmm. and uh, there are efforts underway. Really? Indeed. Uh, there are laws being put in place regulating the use of nighttime lighting. It's uh, it's bad. It's bad for astronomy. It's bad for public health. A lot of the lighting that's used is inefficient because it sends the light upward, when in uh-huh. fact, in order to keep people safe, you want to send the light downward. You want downlighting. You want lighting mm-hmm. here on Earth, but you don't want light that interferes with night sky viewing. When I was a little boy growing up in Brooklyn, New York, I, you could still see the night sky. Wow. Not as much as you would at, way out in the country, but you could still yeah. see stars. Uh, and we used to look at stars and conjecture about them and learned some of the zodiac signs and so on. Uh, we are about to pause for the usual reasons. Quick update on the news from Paula Cooper, then directly back to your calls and emails. By the way, uh, we have space for more calls, 312-591-7200. Get those calls in instantly. We intend to stay with the calls and the email, to be sure, through the evening. Right now, to the WGN Newsroom. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And we return to conversation with three of our friends from the Adler Planetarium, Mark Subaro, Mark Hammergren, and Grace Wolf Chase. And we'll go to directly to the next caller on 312-591-7200. And next up is Stephanie. You are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you. Uh, about the possibility of life in other galaxies, it was mentioned that we know that there are hundreds of billions of galaxies and hundreds of billions of stars so if we apply 
statistical analysis to those numbers, what's the possibility that life like ours exists elsewhere? Who was that fellow down there? Was he in Indiana who worked out? Drake, was that his name? Frank Drake, oh, yeah. Who worked Frank out the Drake, Drake yeah. equations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, the Drake equation is really just uh, a way of organizing our ignorance uh, about the, the occurrence of life uh, yeah. in our galaxy, intelligent life that we can communicate and so you break it down into the individual components, and we've been making great strides in figuring out some of these factors in the Drake equation, like how many stars uh, uh, have planets, how many planets uh, around each star, how many of them are inhabitable, uh, potentially habitable. And then you get to the questions that we still have no real fi- uh, figure on. Uh, what are the percentage of planets that have life, and uh, intelligent life, and that are still around? What's the lifetime of these civilizations? You plug in some reasonable numbers and you get anywhere from a handful of civilizations in a galaxy to many, many thousands of them. In a single galaxy. In a single galaxy, yeah. And then multiply that by the number of galaxies out there. So we may have a universe that is teeming with intelligent life. On the other hand, we may really be the uh, only intelligent uh, life in this entire universe. If the the weird, crazy, wacky conditions necessary for intelligent life to come about, if they're so incredibly rare that maybe it takes multiple universes to to come about before life arises on just a single planet. Or if God decided, having tried it once, and he tried it by putting together those elements that fired off organic reaction from inorganic materials, and having observed it once, he has decided, well, probably... I shouldn't fool around again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We haven't yet raised the question of God. Uh, But inevitably, these issues lead you back to some question about prime cause, prime mover. And Einstein was willing to say that the lawfulness that is observable in nature ultimately reflects the existence of some kind of transcendent, eternal just to quite say entity, but presence. There are a lot of discussions about this. And from what I've observed, pretty much um, what you see is what you bring to the table in the first place. If you believe in God, if you're a person of faith, then you can look at all of this and see it as an expression of an incredible God, yeah. an incredible gift of love. Um, and other people look at it and they see something different. And one of the things that that tells us is this is a question that is not going to be settled by science alone. Um, in fact, you know, religious questions have aspects to them, like does the universe have ultimate meaning? Those kinds of questions can't be answered through science. Um, you have to find other ways of answering them. Um, but indeed, um, it, it does raise the mystery, and I think for uh-huh. people of faith, um, science can be an incredible um, conduit to sort of deepening that mystery and deepening their reflections about God. But how does it work on the other side? In your own world, that is your own, yourself and your colleagues, not merely at Adler, but broadly in the a- astronomy, astrophysics, cosmology community, what might call it, uh, is, typically do you get an avoidance of the question and an agnostic rejection of religious speculation, or do you get some who say, as Einstein really seems to have said, that yes, they believe there must be something transcendent and inexplicable which lies behind it all. You know, I think you know. Or do you get direct commitment to one or another of the established religions from some people? All of the above, right? So there's there's quite a range in the scientific community, and I, so I, I think there's 
there's this belief that you know everybody's an atheist, uh, or um, but you know the, you know I've I've uh, spent time at the Vatican uh, Observatory in Arizona, right? Uh, so the Vatican has a telescope and they're looking out there. But you know there are there are many um, many cosmologists as well who who believe that you know everything can be explained on uh, a purely scientific basis as well. So you know I, I think we're no different than anyone else. But there's quite a range of beliefs out there. Yeah, it's, uh, I'll amplify on what Mark was saying that. Uh, you find people with the same range of beliefs that you find in the general population. Uh, now, as as scientists, as uh, you know, staff at a public institution, we we don't bring religion into it specifically. That's not our job. It's not our job as a as a scientist to inject that into our work either. And uh, for the, those members of our community who who in some cases have brought that in, have tried to address religious uh, uh, issues and say that their science supports one viewpoint or another, that, that really is quite a controversial thing, and it's, it's generally viewed as a bad thing in our community. It's just not science. Um, it's not science, but again, um, science and doing science can, for some people, point to something beyond science. And I think it is our job uh, to, we have to understand that when we're dealing with such big questions cosmologically, that we are going to have a lot of questions from people of faith. Um, and we at least need to point them to the resources and people they can talk to about how science speaks to them within the context mm -hmm. of their faith. Uh, and we do that. The Vatican Observatory that Mark mentioned, um, I'm friends of all of them. I was a grad student at the University of Arizona, um, and they're quite good friends of mine. Uh, there's a cosmologist, Bill Stoger. Brother Guy Consolmagno writes a lot of popular books. Um, and indeed, not just Catholic astronomers, as Mark said, as Mark and Mark said, um, I know scientists of all different religious persuasions. You know, I didn't know about a Vatican observatory in Arizona. How long has it been there? Well, they uh, they spend half the year at Castel Gandolfo near uh -huh. Rome. That's the Pope's and half summer the year, residence. Actually. It's the Pope's summer residence, yeah. exactly. And they run a summer school there. And in fact, a few years ago, they ran a summer school on astrobiology. Mm -hmm. So they specifically dealt with some of these issues uh, of life elsewhere. Which is not a problem for the Vatican Observatory. Well, just as evolution Catholic isn't a problem. Yes, for exactly. Anymore. But are are most of the personnel there uh, Catholic priests? Then uh, priests or brothers? Yeah, um, they are. So, and mm -hmm. they some of them have started out as priests first, and then undergone oh, scientific training. And others, like Icon Magno, is degreed from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and entered the Jesuit Brotherhood afterwards. And are they uh, at the same level of proficiency and sophistication? And and the same kind of equipment as other major observatories. Yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating. Uh, we are about to pause. Quick round of commercials, the last one, and then back to the phones on 312-591-7200. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And directly back to the telephones, 312-591-7200. And next up is Dan who joins us at WGN Radio. Good evening, sir. Oh, hello, Milt. Yeah, and the rest of you guys, Mark and everybody, and Mark. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I happen to be president of Chicago Astronomical Society, an outfit which is now celebrating its 150th anniversary. And I want to talk about some of that uh, intrusive metropolitan illumination. Yes. Kills our night sky. And um, although 
around here it's very very it's a very very difficult task there's a gal on our board of directors who's been working very hard on this her name is audrey fisher you probably recognize that name audrey fisher Uh, is a great friend of ours yes yeah um and um she actually coaxed the cook county uh forest district people to um enact a resolution to curtail light at least within forest district grounds um and that's a that's at least a nice good first foothold into uh, into trying to, to undo the really nasty glare now i also happen to be that guy who uh, operates that uh, planet watch in the lower right corner of the tom skilling weather page in the tribune um and uh, sometimes i get an ask tom why question uh if it has to do with something beyond the, the earth's atmosphere and uh some Sometimes people have chimed in on why are there no stars there anymore? You know, like like Milt was uh, uh, noting earlier when he was even when he was in Brooklyn when he was a kid, he was able to actually look at a night sky, at least something there. But now, you go to Grant Park, you can't see a thing. <laughs> you just can't. There's there's just nothing there. Um, even down by the planetarium itself, even even with the lakeshore right there and nothing but darkness over to the east it's still very very difficult because this pall of light just gets everywhere um but um there was one question in particular where someone was wondering why is there no no more stars there and i said well you know um back some time ago i had made a telescope for uh, star wars creator george lucas and um I, but And I said that with this telescope, you can see galaxies even 300 million light years out. But don't try it if you're near city lights. You won't see them. You won't see those galaxies. Uh, fortunately, he has it at a place where you can see those galaxies because it is away from city lights. But, uh, yeah, there, it, it, it's, it's so frustrating. I do public observing sessions, too notably um, at Spring Valley Nature Sanctuary uh, near in Schaumburg. But, you know, even there, it's not that, it's not dark enough to do this. And it's frustrating. I just tell people, well, it, that light has been coming <coughs> from before the dinosaurs started to walk the Earth. Well, I think what we should probably do... And, and excuse yeah. me a moment, sir. We're a little bit short on time now. Yeah, but sure. Okay. I, I think maybe a good idea would be to uh, just persuade the city council to have one night a year when every light in Chicago was turned off. Of course, then the crime rate would be explosive on that occasion. But well, there's, there's no easy way around this. You might get a little island where you can let through a little bit of starlight, but it doesn't work in the big cities. Yeah, you know, I think a symbolic effort, like you just mentioned, uh, might even be counterproductive. It leads people to think sure. that they're making a, you know, some kind of productive uh, effect to... to counter light pollution. It's another good excuse to drive out into the country. Yeah, if, some, if it's easy to do, then chances are it's not going to have much yeah. effect, really. Uh, but uh, the thing that I think needs to be mentioned here regarding light pollution is you look at this light up in the nighttime sky, that is wasted energy. Not only is it, it bad for astronomy, <coughs> bad for public health, too. Uh, nighttime illumination mm-hmm. has been linked to cancer. Uh, it affects bird migration, all these kinds of things. But also, simply, it's just wasted money and energy. that uh, does nobody any good. So we've designed our streetlights badly. Is Absolutely. The conclusion, is it? Yeah. Any, any streetlight that shines light upwards yeah. uh, is wasting its energy. Hmm. Is there a campaign? Absolutely, R- really there a is. Foot to get them yes, to... I think we've, we've just heard about it, too. Yeah. 
Very good. And we go back to the phones, 312-591-7200. Next up is Michelle, and you are on the air. Good evening. Hello, how are you? Just fine, ma'am. Um, I'm listening to this fascinating discussion, and um, I, was, uh, I was just curious, uh, listening to this and um, uh, hearing of the, about, the, about the immensity of the universe, I'm just wondering what um, global warming, it, how that affects or, you know, has anything to do with what's going on with physics and the universe and, and all of that. And it's just curious how it all fits in. Well, we've been talking about that all night, ma'am. But uh, if you want yet another attempt to put that together, I'll ask any or all to give us a summary statement since we're coming close to the end of the available time at any rate. Well, I'll say that there are a lot of cosmic events which which do affect our climate. They have to do with uh, you know how the uh, how the the Earth orbits the Sun, also how the Sun orbits the galaxy. So as 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 every two hundred and fifty million years we orbit our galaxy, we pass in and out of the plane of our galaxy. We may or get more or less uh, galactic cosmic rays. These cosmic rays may actually seed cloud formation, so changing uh, the weather on these scales, but you know, I think when we talk about climate change, uh, or when you hear talk about it, that's talking about things that are in very short time scales that are not really um, astronomical in scale, and, and, and that's why um, people believe that it's due to human cause. Next caller coming up is Fred. Good evening, sir. You're on the air. Who? You. Oh, okay. Hello there. I was interested in about uh, your guests and their thoughts about solar flares from our sun affecting the Earth and what they do and what would happen if the sun was to send off different charges. And uh, what We'll give you what available wisdom we have at the table on solar flares <clears throat> in instant order. Yes, uh, solar flares are uh, these ejections of material from the sun and uh, energetic bursts. Uh, some of them, if they're directed towards us, can hit the Earth and can affect the Earth's magnetosphere. And uh, most often they'll cause brilliant displays of aurorae. They can also cause the shutdown of uh, some energy networks if they overpower transformers, that kind of thing. We're coming up on the peak of the solar cycle, uh, an 11-year cycle of activity of the sun. So we're coming up on that sometime next year, maybe in 2013. We can expect more solar storms, more of these effects. Uh, chances are none of them will affect us terribly greatly because our technology has improved. Our pr uh, ability to predict when and where these things occur has, has also improved. Uh, and we don't have any reason to believe that they can affect life on Earth in any really great way. And the best evidence for that is that we're all here and we see no mass extinctions tied to solar activity. But what uh, and, and a side effect of the uh, st strong solar activity that's heading toward the peak in the next year or so are beautiful aurorae at uh, far northern and southern latitudes. Um, and in fact, some of them get far enough south to be appreciated from the latitudes of Chicago. Um, and those are due to the fact that the solar wind particles um, interact with particles in the Earth's upper atmosphere, sort of cause the air to glow. So beautiful aurora displays. We should be seeing more and more of those in the next year. And here is another caller, Georgia. Good evening. You're on the air. We're having some trouble getting people to pay attention. Uh, Georgia, are you oh. there? Hello, Georgia. <clears throat> are you talking to Georgia? An old sweet song keeps Georgia on my mind, yes. Oh, bless your heart. Lovely as always, Mil uh, Milton. Um, 
at seven, 1977, we were very uh, just a moment. I have that same frog you have. Uh, we were honored to be with Joel Chamberlain and Paula, the Adlers, and Dr. Alan Hynek on the voyage to darkness. It was the most exciting, wonderful, emotional trip. We were the, uh, my husband and I did the uh, show on board with the passengers. But I'll never forget it, and I'm not going to speak any longer. It's very late to be here about ready to close up the shop. But I'll never forget that wonderful experience. A voyage to where, did you say? Excuse my very hard of hearing, my dear. You said a voyage to where? A voyage to darkness. Uh-uh. Voyage to darkness in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Oh, I see. Excellent. Oh yes, and it was. And we got there, and the the darkness as it came in was so beautifully eerie. And the boats. There mm-hmm. were two boats. We were on the fair sea, and the fair wind came from the uh, Miami area. We came from Los Angeles. We mm-hmm. met in the middle of the Pacific. Wonderful. It was absolutely fabulous. And you and saw I, an awful lot of sky. Just, there's so much more to tell, and I just wanted to share it with you. And thanks to the Adlers and the Planetarium for that wonderful experience. And thank you for that call yes, as thank well. You. Thank, thank you. you. We, we are virtually out of time. Uh, quickly, within the space of a minute, what are you working on right now that you hope will – what kind of result are you looking for? Ah, when one of the things that I'm looking for is to learn something out of the uh, citizen science efforts from the Milky Way Project. We're studying star formation on a galactic scale, and one of the questions that we're hoping to address is whether uh, stars, when they're born, um, can actually cause the formation of new stars. So we're looking at Interesting. star formation. Indeed. Mark Hammergren. We're looking at basaltic asteroids. These are asteroids that appear to be the crusts of differentiated bodies, uh, small planet-like bodies. Solar system was probably chock full of these kinds of things. We've lost maybe 99 out of every 100. So we're looking at the the remnants of these lost bodies of the solar system. And Mark Subarau. Um, looking at ways to better <laughs> better characterize the distribution of galaxies in space. So we know galaxies are distributed in this beautiful cosmic web of structure and trying to find ways to understand its topology. I thank the three of you for joining us tonight. It's been most interesting. It's also been a lot of fun. Uh, our guests have been Grace Wolf Chase, Mark Hammergren, and Mark Subarau, all of the Adler Planetarium. And we've got about a minute left for me to tell you a few things to come. First of all, tomorrow we'll be here only for the one hour, that is from 11 to 12, following a ball game. Um, and... Uh, during that one hour, we'll be talking about, uh, of all things, Clint Eastwood and the moral dimension of his films. A very interesting book done by somebody up at Northwestern, which we received recently, and she will be joining us tomorrow night as we examine uh, the films of uh, uh, of his films, with that is Clint Eastwood's, with some special analysis of their philosophical or ethical cont- uh, intent. Uh, I want to remind all of you that all of our programs, including the one you've just heard, go up on our website, and that is uh, wgnradio.com forward slash extension 720. Podcasts are available not only for our recent programs, but literally hundreds of others, which we call extension 720 classics. Until tomorrow at 11. Thanks to all for listening, and a most cordial good night.